0: And I'm Cal Ralstiala.
1: And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from
0: the American Society of International Law.
1: Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. Today, I'm sitting here with Bob Litt, who's currently of counsel at Morrison Forster and was formerly the General Counsel to the Director of National Intelligence. Bob, welcome. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for sitting down with me. I appreciate it. Um, Can you give our listeners some context for what the Director of National Intelligence does, including what role that office plays in the intelligence community?
0: Sure. Um, Many of your listeners may remember that one of the uh, recommendations of the 9-11 commission was that we needed to better coordinate our intelligence agencies. And the director of national intelligence was established by statute in 2004 for that job. Um, There are 16 intelligence agencies under him, ranging from the ones that everybody knows, like the CIA and NSA, to much smaller components in places like the Department of Energy and the Coast Guard. The, the DNI's job is through use of budgetary authorities and policy authorities to try to integrate them better to make sure that they share information better. And by and large, there's been considerable progress in that area.
1: So let's talk about the intelligence community and in particular, information gathering. Now, I think you'd agree with me that one of the primary goals in the furtherance of U.S. national interest is to gather information. And at times that can be from foreign service employees abroad, military intelligence officers, or civilians. And one potential means that has hit the headline in recent years is surveillance, including of civilians through everyday technology like computers or smartphones. Now, we witnessed not just a national debate within the United States, but an international one over one of the great constant philosophical battles of our time, which is the balance between liberty and security. It could also term it, I suppose, as privacy versus security. How do you look at that balance? And can you give us a snapshot of what the legal framework is that governs those fundamental questions?
0: Sure. Uh, I've always resisted the idea of a balance between security and privacy because that Suggests that as one goes up, the other must necessarily go down. I think the challenge for policymakers and lawmakers is to set up a framework that permits us to achieve both security and privacy. What we've done in the United States is we have a, a several several levels of legal authority and restrictions. Um, the first, obviously, is the Constitution. Um, the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment are the primary restrictions on collection of intelligence via surveillance the second is a series of statutes including the national security act and most particularly the foreign intelligence surveillance act that uh, essentially provide restrictions on surveillance activity conducted within the united states no matter who's targeted or targeted at americans anywhere in the world Um, And the third level of uh, legal restriction is contained in a variety of executive orders and policy issuances by the president. Most important of these is Executive Order 12333, which is the sort of framing charter of the intelligence community, which says, among other things, that you can't collect intelligence except for a valid foreign intelligence purpose, that you have to do it in compliance with law, and that you have to minimize The collection, retention, and dissemination of information about United States persons. So, all of those put together. Now, there's a lot more detail when you drill down, but that's the basic framework within which we try to protect privacy while still enabling intelligence agencies to collect the information they need to protect the nation.
1: And what about from the international field. What what about the international legal regime do you think implicates or sets the stage for this kind of surveillance and the balancing between surveillance and privacy?
0: Well, the protections that the U.S. gives to non-citizens are lesser than those that they give to Americans, which is true for just about every country in the world. Our constitution protects Americans. It does not protect non-Americans. That's not to say that non-Americans have no privacy rights at all. To begin with, there's the requirement that intelligence collection has to be for a foreign intelligence purpose. Um, We can't listen in on Frau Bluchmeister's uh, conversation with her husband about what kind of sausage to buy for dinner. It has to have a foreign intelligence purpose. The second major protection was put into place by President Obama when he said that we need to Um, give consideration to the privacy rights of foreign persons, as well as of American persons in determining what kind of surveillance to conduct. Um, and then there are all sorts of restrictions on sharing information and on how information can be accessed that provide equal protection to foreigners and to Americans.
1: Now, in in 2013, Edward Snowden famously leaked to the press information about the U.S. government efforts to mine data from many sources, including private citizens obtained from individuals' wireless phone providers. Now, did Snowden do any good? And if so, did the good outweigh the harm in your view?
0: So I think he did some good. Um, Number one, I think he um, brought the issues of privacy and surveillance to public attention and triggered a public debate about those issues that I think is helpful. Number two, and, and more important from my perspective, because I think that debate was going to happen eventually anyway, is that um, as a result of Snowden's leak, um, the intelligence community became more committed to being more open about what it does. Um, And I think that's a good thing. I mean, obviously, some aspects of intelligence activities have to be conducted in secret. You're, just, you're not gonna be able to spy on someone if you announce to them, I'm spying on you and here's how I'm doing it. <laughs> um, but we, the intelligence community should be more transparent about how it understands its legal authorities and how it implements them and what kind of oversight and protections exist. And I think that one of the things that they learned after Snowden was that they'd actually be better off with more transparency. On the issue of whether he did more harm than good, it's funny, this morning in the newspaper I was reading an article about President Trump's approach to diplomacy. And it, it made a reference to a comment Edmund Burke made about the French Revolution, which is to, which was to say that clearly it accomplished some good things. The question is, could those good things have been accomplished without doing as much damage as the French Revolution did? And I think that's the same thing with Snowden. I think he did tremendous damage to our ability to collect information by by revealing specific targets and specific methods and specific ways in which we collected information. He did tremendous damage to our relations with our allies. He did tremendous damage to the relationship between the United States and American companies in a way that I think is very damaging to the country. And he also, I think, helped legitimize the idea that everybody should be free for themselves to determine what information should be released to the public. And I don't think a society can function if everybody is entitled to their own view of the law. So my view is that on balance, Snowden did far more damage than was necessary to accomplish the goals that he accomplished.
1: And in terms of the, one of the the things that Snowden did is it gave some insight into how that line has been drawn between surveillance on the one hand and privacy on the other. And obviously, as you saw, the reasonable minds could be said to differ yeah. on where to draw that line. In your view, what what is the right place to draw that line? And what is the accountability for it when the government does, especially in the intelligence side, which is usually not subject to court supervision?
0: Right. I mean, I don't think, I, you can't really answer the question of where is the line between privacy and, and, uh, and security. Um, I happen to think we do a pretty good job. I think that in the current technological environment, I think we need to move towards an approach to protecting privacy that focuses not on the information that's collected, but the use that's made of that information by the government. Let me give you an example of what I mean. When you send an email if you use Gmail, your email sits on a Google server um, and it sits there for some period of time until however long it is that Google retains it. There's no real damage to you if that email, in addition to sitting on a Google server, sits on a government server so long as nobody looks at it and nobody does anything with it. And so given the amount of, inf- of data that's, that's out there and the importance of getting access to this data to understand what our enemies are doing, um, I think that we need to look for frameworks that say that focus not so much on what the government is collecting, but on how access to that information is limited, what uses the government can make of it, how dissemination of the information is limited, and so on.
1: Okay. And does it does the expectation or the individual's differing expectation of what is private versus not, play a role in the analysis, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that, which is the general sensibilities that Europeans, for example, care a lot more about privacy than Americans, for whatever reason, and that's played itself out on the international stage. Is that a relevant point of consideration in terms of, say, we're restricted to collection in terms of the way that you think the U.S. government can or should approach the collection of information of non-U.S. individuals?
0: Well, I think it's fair to say that, that the approach I lay out is not something that European jurisprudence would go along with. Um, it's an interesting question, uh, the extent to which European jurisprudence should govern American intelligence activities. Um, uh, yeah. You're um, Obviously, American. Americans are a, a little bit the pot calling the kettle black if we complain it about other countries using their reaching out and using their laws to govern our behavior, because we've done that for decades. Um, but the fact of the matter is that um, I don't think it's appropriate for European courts to be saying, no, Americans, you can't do this because it's not consistent with our privacy laws. And frankly, I suspect that most European intelligence services would agree because they, ver- they rely very heavily on information we provide them.
1: And would you agree, for in terms of the reciprocal obligation, which is that U.S. courts should have nothing to say as to what happens to American information abroad?
0: Um, I, th- I think that's probably right. I don't think that that we should. Uh, I think there's a real problem with reaching out and attempting to overregulate what other countries do. Um, I think where we can exert regulation is on the what American companies do with data and how it's protected from from European uh, access okay. or, uh, or any other foreign access, for that matter.
1: Let, let's switch gears for a minute um, and just talk about the intelligence community and one of the favorite topics in the headlines, Russia. Now, there's obviously been uh, a fair amount of reporting that intelligence assessments of Russia uh, may not accord in some instances, including with the U.S. president. Uh, can you tell us what role you played in the preparation of the IC assessment about Russia.
0: Sure. Um, This is something that I actually um, was involved in at the very tail end of my tenure. Um, You may remember that the uh, interagency intelligence community assessment was released in January of 2017. Um, I mentioned earlier that there are rules governing what you can do with information about U S persons. And so I reviewed this assessment for one thing to make sure that it was in compliance with those rules, but also because they felt that a lawyer's perspective on this document would be useful. Um, I I will tell you that it is, there were three versions of it. There was an unclassified version that was released. There was a classified version that was released less widely. And there was a very highly classified version that only a few people saw. Um, And I will tell you that the document document is incredibly persuasive um, and leaves no doubt that President Putin directed a Russian interference operation with the uh, intent of helping President Trump win election and hurting Hillary Clinton. Whether that was motivated by favoritism towards President Trump or hostility towards Hillary Clinton isn't entirely clear. But the underlying fact of Russian interference to benefit President Trump is indisputable.
1: So now, uh, Bob, we've spoken over the years many times about the evolving nature of the global order. So I'm going to end this with just the question I ask you every few years, which is what keeps you up at night?
0: Probably what keeps me up at night right now is um, the possibility of, of cyber attacks, no, not the possibility, the reality of cyber attacks. I, I read something the other day that there were like some thousands of cyber attacks every day in the country. Um, We have become very, very dependent on the Internet for both commercial and social reasons, Um, and it is very, very fragile. The military talks about defending the perimeter. The Internet is a perimeter that we can't defend. Um, when, When we go out and we give advice to companies about cybersecurity now, it's never about how do you prevent an intrusion it's always about how do you minimize the consequences of an intrusion? Because there's the offense is way ahead of the defense in this regard. Um, and if you're a large business, you just need one inattentive employee to click on a, a, the link in a phishing email and your whole system can be compromised. So the question is, how do you confine that? What I really worry about is what, um, people like Michael Hayden have called the cyber 9/11, which is the ma- you know a major attack on the power grid or on financial institutions or something that that, that really has a tremendous effect on the economy of the country. Um, and I think that there's a real risk of that, and that's what keeps me up at night.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for being with me today. Um, For all of you listening out there, if you want to talk about cybersecurity, privacy, uh, and all of these issues that we've gone through, please join us at the American Society of International Law, and you can join the membership by going to the ASIL.org. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks, Catherine.